I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates.
Australian Plants Expo, 27th to 28th of August, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, including... BDS in the US, BDS being boycott, divestment and sanctions, launched in the early 2000s in Palestine, now an international movement which, as its charter states, upholds the simple principle that Palestinians are entitled to the same rights as the rest of humanity. The backlash against BDS in a number of countries is well known and fought against, but today I'm interested to find out what it is able to achieve in the US, the country whose government defends Israel no matter what. And that journalist is Adrian Weller. Adrian, can we begin with your journey to support BDS and oppose the Zionist ideology which underpins the state of Israel, just as the US in effect bankrolls Israel and has done so for many decades? What's your family background? Grew up in the Bronx to a Jewish family. We weren't religious. My parents never talked about Israel, even though it was it was founded seven years after I was born. You know, so it was founded within my lifetime, Israel was. They never met, said anything about it, but we, I did grow up learning about the Holocaust. So I grew up not knowing or thinking much about Israel because we, we were secular. You know, my parents were not religious. But because I knew so much about the discrimination that had happened, I decided, I mean, I identified as Jewish, very much so, because my family, but also what I knew about the history. I only learned really about Israel once I got involved with the Freedom Socialist Party. I mean, really, uh, that was in my 30s. And up until then, it had been something I just didn't think about. And that's when I learned about what it is and how it oppresses Palestinians. That started me on my journal for advocating for Palestinian rights. You say it wasn't until your 30s. Was that, would that be the same with most people where you lived, that people weren't aware of what, much about Israel and how Israel came into being? I can't really say because, see, I, I lived in the Bronx and I lived in Brooklyn and I lived in Manhattan. I mean, but then I went over to England for a while. I was in London for three years between, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And then when my husband and I split up, I went back to the States, but I went to the West Coast. I mean, it wasn't like I'd been at one place all my life and 
talking to people about, you know, what they thought about Israel, because as I said, I didn't know anything about Israel when I was younger, and or even when I was a young adult. Maybe it's because I wasn't secular and not did not grow up in a Jewish, you know, kind of religious community that I didn't hear much about or anything about Israel. So that might be the reason. I think that being involved in a socialist party, a fem- socialist feminist party, brought me aware of many, many things, you know, that otherwise I didn't know about because mainstream culture doesn't really tell you these things. However, nowadays, I think a lot more people are more aware about Israel because of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which has made it an issue internationally and nationally. It has been something that has become internationally and especially nationally, Israel as an issue and Zionism as an issue has become a very dangerous and reactionary state and ideology that is threatening, you know, people's rights and, and, you know, their rights to exist, not only the Palestinians in Israel and in Palestine, but it's an, they attack free speech rights because they try to tell people you cannot support BDS. Well, there's actually a case now that's headed for the Supreme Court where an Arkansas newspaper editor refused to sign a pledge that he would not boycott Israel, didn't see why he should. He was upheld in that. But then just recently, a court in Arkansas, a lower court, said that, no, he didn't have a right to do to not to pledge because it wasn't a free speech issue. It was simply an economic issue. So that's probably headed to the Supreme Court now. The discussion is kind of leading me into this because up till now, there hasn't been any federal laws that have uh, approved uh, people saying, oh, you, you, you cannot boycott Israel. You cannot support BDS. This would be, if this gets upheld, it would be the first time there's been a federal law that said that, that it's okay to tell people you must pledge not to boycott Israel if you want to have a government contract or a state contract. So it's a, it's a very uh, serious and dangerous ideology and, uh, and state, I mean, a government. Can I take you back to the West Coast? I assume you're talking about the northern part of the western, the West Coast in the Seattle area. Would you say that was a, a very liberal a very liberal part of America or a very lefty part of America and that's, that helped you to understand just the fact that the, the, the cities or the towns which you were living in? I actually spent most of my West Coast time in Portland up until 2003 and then in Seattle from 2003 until current. So, yeah, mostly I've been in Portland and Seattle in the upper part, the northern part of the uh, West Coast of the United States. Certainly, there's been more of a activism around these issues. However, I literally did not encounter them until I became involved with the party and then and radical women. I have a woman who cuts my hair, and recently I asked her, do you know who em- Emmett Till is? She'd never heard of him. Now, Emmett Till is somebody that every activist, an left-wing activist, he was a black boy who was murdered by the KKK years and years ago. He's, he's an infamous 
you know, symbol of racism in the United States. This woman, who is intelligent, she owns her own business, she'd never heard of him. So my point is, is that it's hard to know what you would know just living in an, an area, a city, if you're not attached to a movement. Because it may seem to me that the people around me know about it, but maybe I wouldn't even have asked them if I didn't know about it. Well, people are kept ignorant for many reasons in many countries, aren't they? Yes, that's true. I think, though, there is more of a general knowledge of it, though. As you said, this is more of a left-wing, more liberal, you know, state, as is Oregon. Although, of course, you look under the surface and there's many, many, many problems. But, yes, in general, we are not, you know, the Deep South. We are not Texas. So there is that. That's true. And also because people have, and myself included, have, we've protested downtown, we've uh, did, you know, things uh, publicly about Palestine and about BDS. So people on the street are more informed because they, they walk by and they get a leaflet or they talk to us or they see a banner. But also the whole way that Israel has been supported and pumped up by the United States government also makes them aware. I think it'd be hard not to be aware of Israel now because of the way the United States government supports them, because of the way Trump supported them, supports them. There's a general higher level of knowledge than when I was growing up. I was born in 41. In the 60s, I was in my 20s. So it was a different time. Talk about BDS and when those three letters came into your, into your knowledge what does BDS actually mean for you? Of course, it stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. started not that many years ago by a grassroots movement in, in Palestine who were calling for civil disobedience based on the South African boycott against apartheid because they say that what's happening in Israel is apartheid, you know, a separation by on the basis of race. What it means to me is an international movement designed to call attention and action against the state of Israel and against Zionism because of their crimes against the Palestinians, because of the way the Israel state has killed them, stolen their land, beaten them up, humiliated them, garrisoned them into uh, sections of land, like with a very big wall, a wall that divides their, the area of Palestinians from is, Israel, and also in the Gaza Strip, which is a little tiny land, piece of land, which um, Israel has made into an open-air prison. Their water is poisoned by the Israelis. They're bombed. They're shot at. I mean, there's no way to express what goes on there. There's no way to exaggerate it because it's really that horrible. And the United States stands behind all of it. The United States government, and, and Europe also, but the U.S. is the prime backer of Israel and of its Zionism. Let's talk about BDS and how it has operated and how it's operating in the United States at the moment. Which areas have been targeted? Boycott action is national. It just depends on there are branches in many cities, I'm sure in, in a lot of the cities, and they are, there was a 
a big campaign against SodaStream, which Star was backing. There was a, you know, a national campaign against it. There's been a fight from professors and universities in order to target the way they've been restricted. Uh, like, for example, uh, last year, Abby Martin, who was a journalist, was going to speak at a Georgia Southern University. She was sent a contract that said that she had to have a loyalty oath to Israel. She refused to sign it. And then uh, two organizations backing Palestinian rights sued. The courts rejected the uh, state's attempt to have that suit rejected, and they upheld her right because they said my First Amendment rights, you know, were involved in this. And that was obviously, you know, really important. In San Francisco in 2021, the United Educators of San Francisco became the first American K-12 public school union to endorse the BDS movement. They said that as educators in the USA, we have a special responsibility to be in solidarity with the Palestinian people because of the $3.8 billion annually that the U.S. government gives to Israel. They're using our tax dollars to fund apartheid and war crimes. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, activists have been trying to get the city to cut its contracts with Hewlett Packard over the company's connection to Israeli apartheid. More than 100 people gave testimony at a city council meeting, a group of city council members uh, who were nervous introduced a substitute amendment with a much vaguer language that it passed. But it doesn't contain strong BDS uh, language, but it calls investigation of the city into what the city invests in in terms of human rights violations. Then there's also pension funds have dumped Israeli firms. Cultural figures have refused to cross picket lines. Patty Smith and um, a number of other, you know, Rage Against the Machine, Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, they have signed letters demanding self-determination for Palestinians and calling for artists to refuse to perform at Israel's and Israel sites. It's national and it's, you know, it's varied. There was also, well, there's action also a lot in other countries, in UK, etc. Um, also recently, the Ben and Jerry, who are really big ice cream manufacturers, producers here in these states, said that they would not let their ice cream be sold in Israel anymore because of its, its apartheid. Now, Ben and Jerry, they're both Jewish. Now, this created, you know, obviously quite a stir. The uh, Zionists were denouncing the ice cream. Uh, what happened was Ben and Jerry is owned by Unilever. Unilever sold their rights to it, to an Israeli firm. So it will be now produced in Israel. But Ben and Jerry said, we don't agree with this, this is wrong, and we're not going to profit at all from it. None of this money goes to us. Technically, they overturned it with money, but in in fact, Ben and Jerry never backed down. I mean, there's been so much, you know. And also, um, this is about New Zealand. New Zealand, their fund, their $33 billion national pension fund, that has excluded five Israeli banks from its portfolio because of their role in financing Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Have the unions, the labor unions, been involved as well? Yes, they have been. In March of this year, 
both the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is the AFL-CIO, and the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, which is AFSCME, which, by the way, I am a retired member of AFSCME. Uh, they collectively representing more than 300,000 workers in the state, passed a resolution calling for the state of Oregon to divest from the fund that owns the Israeli spyware firm NSO. And then the Oregon Education Association, representing more than 40,000 teachers, passed a similar resolution at its convention. They are following this. The NSO group was blacklisted by the Biden administration's Commerce Department, which is very rare for the government to actually take action on any of this. And then in 2021, teachers' unions in San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland passed resolutions in support of the BDS campaign for the first time in the United States. I, I used two main sources for getting general information. One is Mondo Weiss, and the other is the Electronic Intifada. I find useful sources of, of news. Do you know of any artists who had planned to go to perform in Israel and were persuaded not to go? Oh, yeah, there's been so many. You know, the problem is, is I can't, there's so much information I can't remember. All. There's been a lot of artists who've been pressured not to go and have pulled back because of it. It happens frequently, very frequently. It is something that is, it happens constantly where somebody is going to perform in Israel and then they get pressure from the movement, the BDS movement, and they, they, they hate it. They, they don't go. It's not rare. It's, it's quite uh, common for artists to, you know, refuse to go to Israel in order to be able to uphold the BDS. You mentioned just before about the court cases. Is there a widespread backlash against BDS in the United States? I think the backlash, yes, the backlash isn't from the people. The backlash is from the government. There is a, a lot of backlash uh, against BDS. Rage Against the Machine, Patty Smith, various other groups were initial signatures for the Musicians for Palestine Initiative. And an Algerian athlete refused to compete against Israel in the Tokyo Olympic Games in July and braved administrative punishment by the International Olympic Committee uh, because he is with the goal, eliminated the possibility of facing off against Israel. Best-selling author, Irish author Sally Rooney, respected the boycott and refused to allow another Israeli company to buy the Hebrew translations and publications. There is uh, the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel uh, hailed her for joining countless international authors in supporting the institutional cultural boycott of Israelis' complicit publishing sector. There's a lot of uh, cultural backlash, cultural refusal to deal with Israel because of its crimes. In terms of anti-BBS legislation, yes, it's, it's, there's a lot. Israel's uh, attempt to demonize it has resulted in pushing for censoring Palestinian voices and theirs of allies who want to make speaking out against Israel a crime. There was a um, lot of, well, recently this year, 
I did tell, did I just mention it that an, an Arkansas news publisher was told he had to sign a pledge not to boycott Israel in order to have, uh, a, you know, an ad placed in his paper. And he said, you know, he, he sued and he was upheld. But then, uh, lower court recently reversed that and said, no, you can't do it because it's just commerce. And this is headed to the Supreme Court. I think I just did tell you that. So there is a lot of backlash plus pushing back against the backlash. 30 U.S. states have enacted some form of anti-BDS legislation. Governments and universities and other international organizations have moved to suppress this movement. There's quite a battle going on, actually. It, I would call it a class, I would call it class struggle, even though it's obvious, you know, it's not that overtly. On the one hand, there are the people working for the rights of oppressed people, of ordinary working people, of teachers and students and private uh, business owners in order to be able to just exercise their rights to engage in discussion, to bring up issues and to, you know, operate their business without being discriminated against by the government. And then there is the uh, right-wing nationalist racist movement in the United States backing the Israeli Zionists who want to make discussion of Israel, criticism of Israel, and of Zionism a crime. Do you think that in the United States there's less and less support for Israel, particularly with the young people? I do think so. I absolutely do think so. There has been um, concern among the right wing or among the, uh, you know, even uh, the Zionists that young Jews are walking away from Judaism because they all they ever hear, the only content of Judaism is you have to be in favor of Israel. Uh, oh, there's anti-Semitism. You must be in favor of Israel. There's a, a, a man named Eric Alterman who's an important liberal Zionist intellectual. He's not left-winger. He's, uh, he's for Zionism. He spoke at uh, Tel Aviv University at the end of May, and he said that Israel has lost the American left, and Judaism itself is in crisis because all they have to say is you've got to be for Israel. And he's really angry at it, and he's cut Israeli peace organizations out of his will because Israeli society is going the wrong way. This man is going to be giving money to organizations that teaching about about Judaism and not about Israel, because he said uh, Judaism has no answers for young people, and uh, he said this is not true for the Orthodox, but secular American Judaism is dying on the vine, and this is the guy who's on their side. Also, there is the American Jewish Committee, which is also another big pro-Israel, pro-Zionist group here, is now condemning young Jews because they're turning against Zionism. And they, they are, you know, they're bewailing at what's happening, what's going wrong. And the point is you cannot sell apartheid to these idealist young Jewish people, but they will not admit that. They think there's just something happening in their homes and, oh, if you can only do this or that. They will not deal the fact that Israel has become and is becoming a pariah nation. And actually, to go a little further, 24 senators, mostly Democrats, are calling on the FBI to investigate the murder of Shireen Abu Akla, the American-Palestinian journalist that was just murdered by Israel. 
Now, this is significant only because the Democratic Party is really not much of a savior for Palestinians or for, you know, free speech rights. And the fact that they feel that they can do this is a sign of the times. Internationally, everybody knows Israel targeted and murdered her, Shireen Abu Akla. And she was a very important, very highly respected uh, journalist. Also, the Harvard Crimson, you know, I don't know if you know who they are. It's a daily student newspaper of Harvard University. It's very venerable. It was founded in 1873. They have endorsed BDS. And when they were criticized by Harvard faculty, they fought back and got over 100 signatures backing their endorsement of BDS. There's definitely something happening, absolutely. Finally, Adrian, I would say that BDS is alive and well in the United States and greatly supporting the people of Palestine. I would say that's true. I mean, we're not, I mean, I'm not saying that we're like a, a household name, but it's definitely, if, if nothing else, I think the attacks on BDS have made us more, not more visible because, um, if you're going to attack somebody, you bring them into the limelight if, if they fight back. Also, there was um, another big Jewish Zionist organization is the Anti-Defamation League. And they are important because they put themselves forward as a civil rights organization. And they are consistently anti-BDS and attacking people who support BDS, which means, of course, attacking a lot of black liberationists and uh, people who are human rights, you know, and human and justice organizers. And so they have been targeted by people who are in support of Palestinian rights and in freedom of speech. On June 25th, this year, a petition was circulated speaking out against the ADL attack on movements for Palestinian liberation. And both the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women have signed that petition. I could email you that link if you wanted me to. Okay. Final words? Do you have any more? Uh, I know I've jumped around a lot, but you've asked me a lot of different <laughs> questions. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess my point is is that our freedom of speech is being attacked, and we are fighting back. But it's a, it's a serious battle, and if the right wing, who have a returned abortion rights here in the United States, can get this passed, one or two things about the Melbourne sections of the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women because they are very active uh, in solidarity action for Palestinian rights. Every year there's a protest for them, for Palestinians, and both RW and FSP get involved in them, also heavily involved in Aboriginal rights, who they connect to the rights of Palestinians. And also in the movement for reproductive rights and LBGTQ rights. So they're really quite active. And now FSP, the FSP Melbourne branch, is starting a study group on proletarian internationalism, uh, learning from socialist responses to the war yesterday and today on Zoom. If you want to find out what's happening in Melbourne, uh, radical women and the Freedom Socialist Party, Go to socialism.com for FSP or to radicalwomen.org 
for radical women and look for their Melbourne branches, and that will give you the links to their activities. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. And Adrian Weller is a journalist with Freedom Socialist on the west coast of the United States. And that was Jan speaking with journalist Adrian Weller on boycott, divest and sanctions and the backlash it's having in the US. You're on 3CR. Got more coming up for you after the break. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
track was Tebby Tebby Hamatuk um, by Ego Lemos from the album and Songs of Peace and Hope and Freedom from the Pacific and Themes from the West Papua's Liberation Struggle. Next up we've got Jan uh, talking to Peter and analysing the pre-election period and the election results in the Philippines. You know with Peter Murphy, human rights activist for the Philippines and Peter What's the state of play in the Philippines at the moment in relation to the new president? Is he a new president yet? Rodrigo Duterte is the outgoing president um, and he's still got the powers of the president until the inauguration of uh, the new one, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. The inauguration is on June 30. We, you know, just are having all of, you know, the ministers of what would you call the departmental secretaries cabinet members of uh, Rodrigo Duterte are still also in office and it will all change on Friday. Well, will it change greatly? Uh, I don't think so, but there will be a change. I mean, there will be a different cabinet and there's some indication already that, uh, you know, Duterte's people are being a bit pushed aside and uh, people associated with Estrada, Arroyo and even the old Marcos Senior uh, will feature in the new cabinet. One of the things going on right now is that the designated new national security advisor is a, a woman for the first time, and uh, I'm sure she's a very conservative character, but she did uh, recently make statements that the red tagging uh, was a counterproductive exercise. And almost immediately after that, the incumbent uh, national security advisor uh, really went on a rampage. You know, there's been... Uh, the declaring of some other people in the National Democratic Front, especially a very elderly retired negotiator, Louis Halandoni, as a terrorist, and um, the uh, ordering of 
27 websites in the Philippines to be shut down because they're associated with communism and terrorism. I mean, they're all legally, they've been operating for years and years, um, related to some church bodies, some trade unions, and and many of them are, are like uh, Crikey or you know, the New Daily in our sort of terms, you know, their news websites because they're, they're critical of the government. They've been uh, hit with this order and they've been taken off the air, in fact. Yeah, I think that that's a sort of a last gasp from Esperon, his name is. I'm hoping that that, that will change, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really living on hope because the continuity between Duterte and Marcos, I think, will be the predominant thing. The economic program will continue. The um, relations with the United States, the tension with China ongoing downgrading of agriculture in the country, speculation and, and just outright plunder of uh, public resources, that will all continue. So, And I think from our point of view um, on human rights, um, this means that the poverty, the uh, insecurity of life and the impunity of state forces in taking life or detaining people on completely you know, fabricated charges, uh, that will all continue as well. Can you talk a little bit about the peace negotiator who's on that list now, Louise, a long-time fighter for peace? I can't remember all the details about uh, Louis's life, but you know, he's, as a, he came from a relatively wealthy family in Negros. He became a priest. During his uh, duties as a priest, he was confronted with the uh, plight of the sugar workers in Negros, uh, extremely poor faced a lot of violence if they spoke up for themselves and so he became associated with organizing sugar workers and then martial law came down and, and hit hard against that sort of work and I think he had to go underground himself and he took part in quite a bit of underground organizing in the like 1972-3-4 period and was associated with one of the very first strikes that took place in the end under under martial law. It was actually a rum distillery, Tandawai. And then uh, I guess it was the uh, National Democratic Front, the Communist Party of the Philippines, both underground, asked him to leave the country, go to the Netherlands to be a point of information for the international community. So, you know, it's, it's a very long time ago, 1976, since he's really lived in the Philippines. So to, to, to accuse him of being a terrorist in the Philippines is like a totally absurd. It can only be vaguely sustained because the definition of terrorism in this anti-terrorism law is so broad. And it really captures anybody who can be accused of causing, you know, public disquiet that is someone who's involved in an argument and of course the National Democratic Front is involved in a big argument about poverty, justice and, and the sort of future development of the country. They're arguing all about that with the series of governments we've had since the 1970s. It just shows how stupid that law is that someone like Louis Hallandoni could be you know, labelled that way and action be taken. Um, not, not that it has any, any material effect on Louis, because I'm sure he doesn't have a bank account that can be seized in the Philippines and, and so on. I'm sure living on a pension in, in the Netherlands, um, a modest life. I think Louis, of course, is protesting about this, and 
continues to play some sort of consultative or advisory role, but he's really not a player uh, in any big way, even in the peace talks. Can you talk a bit more about the body or the people who make up this organisation that puts these people on a list? Who are they? In his case, it's called the Anti-Terrorism Council. So the law was adopted in mid-2020 and the council was set up under the terms of the law. It's basically military and police officers. Uh, the national security advisor is like uh, the deputy on, the, on this council of the president. And technically, I think the president's the head of it too. It's purely an executive body. It's like, if you can imagine Australia where the prime minister decides who, who gets arrested or who's labelled. There's no judicial process involved at all. There is a, another step in this, but if the council of these military and police officers name an organisation or a person as a terrorist, then surveillance can be intensified on them. They can be arrested and held for 24 days without a charge. All of, all of this uh, guilt by association around the person. And then if the council, and of course their financial assets can be seized and all this, and then uh, if the council wants to proscribe them, they then have to go to the courts. But they haven't done that with anybody yet. So you see how much damage can be done just with this arbitrary power. Yeah, I think we should just imagine that... Um, the chief of the army or his deputy or her deputy and, and the chief of the federal police and state police, they're, they're on this council. They decide. Is this the same as red tagging or is that something on top? That's the same thing because in general they're saying these people are communist terrorists. It's a sort of a dual thing because the law is called the anti-terrorism law. They put the word terrorism in and it's been going on for a few years as they've been building up to this often it's you know, an organisation or group of people is called a communist terrorist group. CTG is even, they've got acronyms for all of this. Yeah, being accused of uh, being associated with the New People's Army, the Communist Party of the Philippines, and now the National Democratic Front of the Philippines is sufficient. Well, that's called red tagging, and that's sufficient to get you on a death list, to get you know, all this action uh, aimed at you. The red tagging has been going on for years and years, but became much more intense after 2018 when another body was formed. It's called the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict. And that also got the president at the top of the task force, his deputies, Esperon in this case. And uh, it's like a parallel, um, but it's a more freewheeling than the Anti-Terrorism Council organises raids. Uh, clearly, to me, there's a pattern where it organises assassinations. The red tagging takes the form of very you know, intense uh, social media posts, posters being put up naming people, big uh, banners with photos on them saying all these people are terrorists and hung all around you know, towns and uh, villages and in cities. It's completely you know, unregulated. There's no re reference to any uh, investigation or judicial or process or right of appeal or anything like that. So it's just a sort of uh, operation of denunciation and slander, a bit like the old, good old-fashioned witch hunts. Definitely there's, because of the anti-communist rhetoric in it, it's like McCarthyism gone crazy. Can you name another country that behaves the same way as this? 
I'm, I'm sure that there's similar patterns in uh, Latin America. In Asia, uh, we don't really uh, have this sort of, this sort of uh, intensity uh, in any other. Like if you look at Malaysia, Indonesia has got an incredible. You know, the government has got an incredible phobia for anything to do with uh, Marxism or communism. But this kind of uh, campaign doesn't doesn't go on in Indonesia in, in this form at all. So there's you know there's intense surveillance of any so-called leftists, but there's not not this um, crazed, uh, feverish uh, pursuit of, of individuals and organisations. Maybe for the last 20 years, Indonesia has been far more troubled by Islamic uh, fundamentalist violence than anything to do with the left. But I do know trade unionists in, in Indonesia are, you know, really concerned about the level of uh, surveillance that they do experience. But it's not like what's going on in the Philippines. Well, it just makes you wonder, surely, how long Professor Clarita Carlos is going to last because she not only said that red tagging must stop, but there should injustice and inequality should be addressed. Yes, but I think that's very normal rhetoric from all sides of politics in the Philippines, you know, when they're engaged in a certain uh, public relations exercise. So... Even Rodrigo Duterte would say he's very worried about poverty, but he, he's only done things that exacerbate it. I think you can expect the same from uh, the next Marcos presidency. Professor Carlos, yeah, who knows how long she will stay in the job, but I, I'm pretty sure she'll stay for a while. I think there's, there is some tension you know, between the incoming cabinet and the outgoing people. And it's hard to perceive exactly what their argument is. But, you know, the Philippines is has gained a lot of notoriety in the international community under Duterte. It was very notorious also under Arroyo in the first decade of this century. And then you'd have to go back to Marcos for the next period of great notoriety. So I think most uh, even conservative Filipinos and, and leaders in the Philippines would want this to sort of be calmed down, to you know, get the International Criminal Court off their back, to get the UN Human Rights Council off their back. Some kind of um, diplomatic you know, offensive like Clarita Carlos's uh, message is, is really well-timed, I, I think, but they would have to do something, I think, to demonstrate that, that they're ending the, the campaign of red-tagging. We, we have to wait until next week, really, to see if uh, there's really any sort of uh, substantial shift going on. You know, there's about 700 political prisoners in the Philippines and, and nearly 500 of them were, were put there by the Duterte uh, presidency. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of scope for you know, relatively substantive gestures by the incoming government just to shift the perception. And this will depend, depends on what they're thinking about their economic and diplomatic uh, profile. Um, but I, I think if they want, you know, more consideration from governments, especially in Europe and North America and Australia, say, then they need to change the perception and they need to show that they're changing something. From our point of view in ICHIRP, we're calling, first of all, for the release of uh, Senator Lima de Lima, Leela de Lima. She's a senator and she's been um, in prison now for five years. She's then really there because she criticised the... Uh, killing of poor people in the, in the name of a war on drugs. 
since the International Criminal Court investigator has found that that campaign of drug anti-drug operations amounts to a crime against humanity. I think um, Senator DeLima is fully vindicated and there's absolutely no way she should be in prison. One of the things we're doing is calling for her release and for the release of all the, all the political prisoners. That would be great if that happened. Well, that notoriety doesn't seem to have affected the Australian government's support for Duterte and we'll see what happens with the new Labor government. Yes. So, so from, again, it's a new situation in Australia, it hasn't quite settled down yet, um, but uh, you see that uh, the Foreign Minister has, has been hyperactive on uh, the South Pacific and she's been to Indonesia. Uh, I think that we we are determined to get some kind of uh, discussion with her or her office about a, a reset of the Philippine uh, relationship. I don't know what will come of that, but I'm sure that we will get, at least in the opening period, a, a genuine exchange of views, whereas with the uh, previous foreign minister, we basically got a formula which was, yes, you know, we've privately objected to these things happening, and, uh, you know, they did vote the right way in the UN Human Rights Council, but nothing changed in terms of the military relationship. So I think Australia, the Australian governments have got a sort of dual track policy on the Philippines and, you know, where ministers and and, uh, significant people in government might be really horrified, genuinely horrified at what uh, Duterte was doing. Others were very willing to help him keep going uh, because of the tension with China because of the relationship of Australia with the United States. I mean, we can do a lot better than that. This sort of thing makes a mockery of all of the trumpeting about Australian values, which we so sadly hear endlessly from Prime Ministers. Yeah, we're looking for a change there, and uh, hopefully the dialogue can start soon. Just finishing off with um, the red tagging and the other issues, someone should remind the... Philippines government that the, the government in China is a communist government. <laughs> yes, yes. I think quite a lot of Filipinos are making this point, but um, the whole thing is a bit absurd, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's a communist government of, of billionaires. It's just a sort of uh, slippery use of language on all sorts of sides. So, yes, we can say this uh, and we should say it, but I think it when we're you know, seriously trying to grapple with the problems in the Philippines and the, what role Australia and other governments might be playing there, we, we can't really indulge in too many tricks. You know, it's, it's too serious and there's been, far, you know, tens of thousands of lives have been lost in this last six years uh, because of this violent, inhuman uh, government there. It'll be a bit of a stain, I think, on Australia's record that we did so little about it that, in fact, we continued to finance it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very um, serious about, you know, approaching this, you know, directly, clearly, and trying to, you know, make the facts speak for themselves. Another story that I've looked at, Peter, is the fear that when Marcos Jr. takes power, the documents that are in the archives relating to the atrocities of his father's regime will be mm-hmm. destroyed. Yeah, I think there's a really genuine fear that that can happen and that might happen next week. 
Yeah, I heard that radio report about the, the frantic efforts of those people in that institute to try to digitise and preserve uh, as much as they can. Um, it's really clear that um, one of the major projects of the Marcoses, I know for a couple of decades now, has really been to whitewash or sanitise their, their family story. And it did, did have a measurable impact in this election we just saw happen. So they will continue with this. One of the cabinet appointments is that the vice president-elect, Sarah Duterte, will be the education secretary. So I think, yes, we can see more book burning and more purging of uh, information and also a much more sustained attack on the main teachers' union, the Alliance of Concerned Teachers, which was already happening you know, really, really badly under Duterte. Well, it will continue, and uh, I think that's going to be a pretty big issue for the international trade union movement, the way it's going. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, good. Thank you very much for this interview, Jan. And we will see what happens in the Philippines after Wednesday. That was Peter Murphy. That was Jan and Peter discussing human rights in the Philippines, red tagging, and what the future may hold under the 17th president. Uh, now I've got a little song for you. hope you enjoy. This is called Brother by Mystic Trio. Brother, 
is what I'll be. Brother, you are my brother. You are my friend. You are my friend. You are my brother. You are my Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch.
And that was Free West Papua by Emosi Lamada. You're on 3CR, and we apologize for the interruption early on, Lee Tan. We're just having a few little technical gremlins in the studio this morning. But if you want to hear more uh, from Lee Tan's interview, go back and you can hear the entire thing on 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday Home Time. And up next, we've got Fred Fiontes on the recent Colombian election. On the program last week, journalist and author Fred Fuentes spoke about the recent summit of the Americas. Now to the final part of that interview, where Fred talks about the recent second round of elections for the new president of Colombia. Fred, the new president is Gustavo Petro, the country's first leftist president. What was the mood in Colombia which resulted in this win? Yeah, well, look, this is yeah truly a, a historic victory. You know, as as you point out, it's the first leftist, and like, that's not aligned with the, the sort of faction of of the uh, behind Alvaro Uribe. You know, a sort of a very, very much a sort of a, a far right figure, a militarist figure, someone who's promoted war against, you know, obviously uh, supposedly against the guerrillas, but really a war on as a whole. But we've seen that the, the, despite that sort of long, long sort of history of war, both hot and cold, against the left. Um, finally, has been able to, well, not just the left win, the, the Uribe forces, that sort of conservative section of, is not even able to make it into the second round of these elections. So it really sort of shows a really important sort of breakdown of the sort of, a, you know, sort of traditional voting voting blocks in the country and a, a sort of a reiteration that's underway. Of course, that doesn't mean that the, the hard right is gone. That doesn't mean that Uribe supporters have disappeared. They're, they're still there and they'll be waiting in the winds. And, you know, so much so that even on election night, you know, there was concerns about, well, would they be willing to? But in this case, they were. The results were very clear. And so what we have is, is yeah, a, a, a really a, a great celebratory moment. Although, of course, it's, it's the beginning of a long period of hard work uh, in terms of uh, for the left in, in Colombia. It certainly is, and how do you believe he's going to tackle it? There's a lot of things stacked against him. You know, as I said, it's 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 a the country that, due to you know largely a civil war that's you know lasted for about fifty, sixty years, officially over, but even even then, there's still there's still ongoing conflicts that occur um, in rural areas uh, with different guerrilla forces, and you know and should be mentioned that, that Petro himself was, was formerly a guerrilla, although he sort of, you know, renounced that. Instead, built up his political career, being mayor of, of Bogota, of, of, of the capital. But uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be extremely difficult. It's not clear uh, how, how the relationships will be the, with the U.S. I mean, Colombia's by far been the, the key destination for U.S. Uh, military in the region. All of these factors are, are certainly uh, going to play. Uh, I think. One, certainly one positive is that his election result is not a unique phenomenon in the last period uh, because it, you know, we in Chile long ago as well. Um, the left, um, you know, arguably since Salvador Allende in the, in the 70s, the first time a, a left-wing president has been elected there as well. And already they've expressed a lot of similarities in, in their positions. You know, I think both Petro and Gabriel Boric in Chile, press a kind of a, you know, like almost like a, a new, new left. 
if the wave of previous presidents like Hugo Chavez, Evo Morales, Ignacio Lula da Silva in Brazil were the, the new left, the pink tide, we, we see a, a sort of a new, new left emerging. So I was just going to say, we had differences with that new left. Like, certainly Petro has, you know, raised his criticisms of, of, of what's been happening in Venezuela, uh, but, but also, the, you know, they, and, and they share a lot of common issues as well. And how are they going to stop the paramilitary violence? Because it's just gone on forever and ever, and it, it just doesn't seem to be stopping at all. This is going to be difficult, and, 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 and unfortunately, I don't believe that there's any, any easy answers. We see that a similar thing with, with AMLO, with uh, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, where, of course, you know, he wasn't and he hasn't been able to get the, the violence from the drug gangs uh, in Mexico, but yet he's been able to, to maintain support by the other social programs that, that he's been running. So I think that's going to be a key factor. I think some of the, you know, which have been so ingrained in the Colombian society are not going to disappear. But if, if people can get a sense that at least some change is beginning to happen, Petro will be able to at least, you know, consolidate his support and be able to use that as a launching pad for, for some of the bigger issues. But of course, you know, I think there'll be attempts to, you know, the, the, the peace negotiations with the ongoing guerrilla forces, that may be an avenue to really undermine the presence of, of the paramilitaries. Um, you know, that, that was, that's been a big part of what the left, or the, the urban left has always sort of said in Colombia, that the guerrilla war, whilst understandable, particularly in its origin, how it began, how communities in the rural areas, so at a certain point became outdated and actually you know, ultimately benefited the, the hard right who could use it to demonize the left and to, to basically somewhat justify their paramilitary activities. So I think, I think that's going to be sort of the, the, the work that Petro will do. You know, he's, he's sort of um, probably, you know, three, three things, you know, consolidate his support through important social programs immediately, um, as quickly as he can, to sort of seek to finally put a, an end or, or to finally consolidate the, the, the peace negotiations um, with, with the remaining uh, guerrilla forces as much as possible. And I imagine a third aspect will be the, the border region with Venezuela, which is, well, not exclusively the only area of paramilitary activity, has, has been an important one in, in recent periods. How many US bases are there in Colombia? Well, look, uh, look this, of course, this is a disputed question. How do you define a US base? You know, some will say there's seven to nine, others will say none. Uh, but the, of course, the definition here is determined by, well, you know, is, is it a U.S. military base if the U.S. just use it to be based on, even if it's still technically a Colombian military base? So beyond the question of, you know, if how many uh, military bases, the relationship between the two militaries is going to be of, of crucial importance because, of course, the Colombian military is still the same Colombian military as it was the day before the election. And, you know, it has always played an important role in Colombian politics, and that's precisely why it's been such an important destination for U.S. military aid and joint training. So the role the Colombian military plays will be important, and how Gustavo Petro navigates that will, will also be of, of equal importance. But again, as with the other ones, these, these are not, not easy, easy issues that can just be dealt with uh, overnight. Nevertheless, a great victory, Brad. Oh, absolutely, one one to celebrate. Even even a, you know, no, of course, no doubt, everyone in Colombia or, um, who supports Petro knows that the hard work really begins now. But that's no reason at all to not be be celebrated today. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. And I've been speaking with journalist and activist Fred Fuentes. And that was Fred Fuentes on the recent Colombian election. And a big thanks to Tuesday Home Times, Jan Bartlett. If you want to hear more from Jan, um, you can catch her on 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday Home Time to listen back to all of her uh, other audios. And thank you for tuning in. Up next, we've got Women on the Line. And we will return to you tomorrow for Tuesday morning breakfast at 7am. You're on 3CR. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants included grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. would like to thank our sponsors Earth Greetings Cards that connect, care and celebrate Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program you can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. I'm going to read you the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Hello, this is DJ Labcat, and you're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Or-